You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of media theory and digital economics at Queen SUNY. Named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT, he hosts the Team Human podcast and has written many award-winning books. Holding a PhD from Uterecht University, his latest book is titled Survival of the Fittest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Douglas Rushkoff. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Um, I was a theater director way back when, but got interested in the late 80s and early 90s in the kind of emerging cyber culture and was, you know, thrilled to see all that sort of stuff, the, the, the wild new potentials of the collective human imagination. And I guess got slowly disillusioned over the next decade or two as uh, business really took over the net and technology and turned our computers, you know, less into tools for us to explore than, uh, you know, tools that use us <laughs> and extract value from us in various ways. And I get called in a lot by uh, uh, in tech companies and business people a lot to kind of, uh, I guess, pontificate a bit on, on what I think is going to be happening in the future. Okay, so your latest book is titled Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Uh, you start the description of the book by writing, quote, the tech elite have a plan to survive the apocalypse. They want to leave us all behind. So at first glance, that just about sounds like some, some kind of QAnon conspiracy theory. So to begin, can you introduce us to the, the thesis behind this book and explain what you mean by the, the apocalypse? Well, it's interesting. I mean, QAnon, the difference, I guess, between me and a QAnon conspiracy theorist in this case is the only difference is that the QAnon conspiracy theorist believes what these tech bros are saying, right? In my, in my, uh, in my subtitle, I call it, you know, escape fantasies of the tech billionaires. So I don't think that their escape plans are valid or, or real or worth anything. And I guess the conspiracy theorists would say, Oh my God, they're going to get in their rocket ships or go into their EVAs all behind where I would say, no, 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 no. They're just kind of crazy people who think that they could somehow escape the uh, disasters of their own making. But the apocalypse, at least the apocalypse that they see, uh, coming is either uh, climate change or massive social unrest due to uh, economic inequality, uh, pandemic, uh, nuclear accident, an electromagnetic pulse of some kind, or um, really just the breakdown of civilization as we know it that would require them to have some kind of, a, of an exit strategy. Okay, so you start the book off by telling the story of how you were invited to do a, a talk for a few tech billionaires who wanted to get your advice on how to best prepare for a doomsday scenario. And you talk about how as time went on, it became clear that they might actually want this doomsday scenario. But given their extraordinary wealth, wouldn't they actually be the ones um, with the most to lose in this sort of um, potential apocalyptic situation? 
Well, you would think, I mean, you would think that they have the most to lose, but in some ways, this is what they've been going for all along. You know, they, yes, I mean, I think it's, I, I think that, that no amount of money and technology can really let you escape from the, the catastrophe of your own making, but they got, uh, they took an idea from science fiction called accelerationism and they think that this civilization is just not working right, that it's too complicated and there's too many loose ends. And they really want to just kind of go pedal to the metal and accelerate things that just kind of rips this thing down to, to tear it all down and start fresh. I mean, they love a new operating system. That's how you went from like web two to web three, you know, or you go meta. Or as Peter Thiel would say, you go from zero to one and you exist one order of magnitude above all your competition. Or Mark Zuckerberg, when Facebook isn't quite working, he imagines, oh, we're all going to go into the metaverse together, into this new virtual reality. So in, in some ways, the, the, the objective all along has been to kind of build a car that could go fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. It's been the the technologist's dream, really, uh, since, gosh, since the Renaissance, to use technology and power to kind of dominate women, control nature, and and make the whole world way more predictable. So for them, kind of pushing through this, getting to the next place, leveling up, becoming like gods, really does require rising above the the matter itself and becoming something else. You know, Ray Kurzweil at Google believes he's building a computer that will host his brain, and he looks forward to uploading his consciousness to the computer. So the, the apocalypse fantasies of these guys, they may not be uh, exactly positive for them, but they help justify this this escape plan, this this uh, uh, strong desire to move out into the ocean with seasteading communities, or to go live on a mountaintop, or in New Zealand in one of their you know uh, prefabricated uh, bunkers, or to build a solar powered eco village out in the middle of the desert, or to have a rocket ship that could get them off the planet and give them a justification to terraform Mars. The the apocalypse here is really just the excuse to keep running and to to keep, you know, driving forward towards that that fantasy of a of a place with with what they call, you know, total self-sovereignty where they could be really in charge and control all those weird unpredictable things of real life. Okay, but what I'm still not clear on here is it, why exactly anyone else should care. Um, you know, so, I, I mean, it, they, based on what I've heard so far, I mean, they, they have sort of these apocalyptic fantasies, you know, um, that may or may not be plausible. Um, but that sort of justify their own, um, their own endeavors, their own, own fantasies, their own desires, whatever, um, it may be. But at, at the same time, I, I, I can't understand why, you know, if I'm sitting here, um, why, why should I care that, you know, some tech billionaire out there has his, his fantasy? I have my fantasies. I have my dreams. You know, I have things that I would like to see become a reality. And so do they. Um, and, you know, if they have misguided beliefs or, or beliefs that, you know, aren't based in, in, you know, fact, then, you know, that's, that's their business. And at the same time, insofar as there's no coercion, 
nothing that they can do can really affect me involuntarily, right? Um, all, all they have the ability to do is put a product offering out into the market. So uh, Facebook, oh. for example, they can create the metaverse. They can't make people go into the metaverse. Um, any, any of these developments, you can create the technology to fuse your consciousness with, with AI or whatever, but you can't force people to do it. Um, That's so, true. That's absolutely true. And it's quite possible you may be right. And Musk and Thiel and Zuckerberg and and Jeff Bezos, none of these people really influence our culture at all. They don't influence our economy just because they own most of it. Just because <laughs> it's possible. You could say we are impervious. They have nothing to do with us. They they don't affect our schools. They don't affect our tax policy. Uber doesn't affect our cities. Uber didn't change the lives of anybody else. None of it matters. None of it's even happened. I mean, you could go that far. If you are want to be a true, full-on orthodox libertarian, hey, man, survival of the fittest. If they can convince people to to use an app, power to them. If if Bezos can own can 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 get all the money in the world, God bless. But I think it's important for for a world where so many people um, do use. I think a lot of people do use these technologies. I think a lot of people are on Amazon or are using Facebook or are using Uber. A lot of kids and people I know they emulate um, Elon Musk or or uh, Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. That it would be good for them to know what these people think and how they how they understand their projects you know you could say it's irrelevant right what if your president believes that the whole world should be you know that that everyone's an idiot and that the human race should be let go you know whatever that's fine you know it doesn't matter but if these guys actually do take stuart brand at their word and see themselves as gods and mean to leave this planet or leave us behind, you know, if they are like, uh, uh, like their friend Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and they really do believe that it's okay to abuse people in any way you want, you don't have to look at them even, you don't have to look at other people even as people, you know, if we're okay with the fact, and we know this now to be true, that billionaires enjoy less empathy than regular people. They actually, their, their frontal lobes become damaged over time. That's not conspiracy theory. It's just science that you put a billionaire in an MRI machine and show them a picture of a starving baby. They won't have the same reaction. Their, their brains don't light up. They, they behave as if they've had a brain trauma. I think it's at least important that we know that this is true. So then we understand, okay, so the platforms we're using may be biased in certain ways. That, that, that aren't in our best interest. You can make the argument, privacy doesn't matter, right? Every app sees everything I do. It doesn't matter. I'm not breaking any laws, so it doesn't matter. Those are, those are great. I mean, those are the kind of arguments that freshmen in my classes make all the time. What does it matter if I'm not going to break the law if everyone knows everything I've ever done? Well, there's some problems with that. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it's, it's not, it's not so simple. Yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of things there. Uh, some, some of which I, I agree with. Um, for example, the why does it matter if someone can see everything that I've ever done? I think that idea is 
is profoundly um, uh, anti-American, anti-freedom, anti-democracy. Um, you know, it's it, it's ludicrous that that um, you know just because you might not have anything out there to hide. Um, I, I don't think that that means you know the complete and open transparency of all your data is the right thing. You know, um, there there are a lot there are a lot of people that do. Um, you know, maybe not because they're they're you know criminals, maybe not because of illicit activities. But their privacy means something, you know, that might be the, the single mother out there with an abusive ex-boyfriend out, out, out to find her. Um, you know, it, it could be, you know, any, any number of situations and, and privacy is valuable. So that, that part I don't disagree with. Um, the, the other part of this, this equation though, um, which is that, 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 um, you know, for example, uh, that sort, sort of like you pointed out, um, why should we care if the president has these fantasies? Well, because the president has coercive power. The president can make people do things against their will. Um, the president has the power to basically influence laws, legislation at, at an, at, at an unprecedented, um, level, right? So if, if the president. So you believe that people are only potentially dangerous to each other if they have the ability to coerce. Not necessarily, right? Um, so, for example, uh, if, if I'm thinking of Bill Gates or Elon Musk, they, they uh, insofar as they're not breaking the law, um, you know, they can they can take all of everyone's data and just release it out there to the world, and so can the credit card companies and 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 everyone else, um, and they would be in violation of the law, right? So, as as long as they a can't coerce someone and b they're operating within the bounds of the law, then the only potential they have is is their own um, you know product offerings. So they can, they right. can say. So if someone's operating, if we all operate within the law, but we're operating in a way that's going to say destroy the environment or, uh, uh, create great joblessness or sadness or dissatisfaction, we can just continue doing that with impunity. And that's fine. But then why not have someone write a book that says, Hey, Yes, it's all legal. They're allowed to end the world. It's okay. But do we want to expose it? Do we want to at least give people the ability to make a choice as to whether, say, you know, so there's a printer company in America called Epson, and they make a printer. Corey Doctorow just wrote about it. They make a printer that seizes itself up. It locks itself. It bricks is what it's called after a certain number of pages, not because it's not functional, but because they want you to buy a new printer. Now, the guy at the printer company understands that's not really a good thing to do, right? Because it, it's not really good for the environment. I mean, you might not believe there's any environmental problems going on. I believe there are some. I believe human beings are impacting our environment so that requiring people to dig more rare earth metals out of the ground in order to make another printer and then having to also dispose an extra printer, then throw it on a toxic waste dump in Brazil where kids are going to pick over it to find renewable uh, elements in it is, is unnecessary. But I get it. The guy at the company says, I can sell another printer. The calculation that guy's making, and this is the part that's new here, is that guy does believe that his activities are destroying the world. They're making the world less livable, but he believes, I would say selfishly, that he can make enough money in the, in that transaction to insulate himself from the damage he's created, right? Okay, um, so there's that and that he can get away. From, and so I just think, oh, it'd be cool if people knew what that mindset was. That's okay, all. Um, but 
why why would people then then buy his printer over you know the many other printer companies out there if i if i make a terrible product uh i can't make people buy it right well, it depends if you have a monopoly. No, you can't. See, you're you're in a really interesting, simple understanding of the market. It's really fun. You can't make anybody do anything. No, but um, not not directly. But you can by establishing uh, business monopolies in different marketplaces. You can effectively uh, you can effectively control markets. Okay, there, I mean, there, there. I agree with you, right? If that happens to be the only printer company in America. Then yes, we do right. have a, a right. huge problem but on our hands. Wouldn't it be good for people to know? And then also for people to know who are going into business. So someone could read, someone could see that printer company and go to business school and go, Oh, that's called planned obsolescence. That's the way we sell more printers. Now I could say, yeah, it's interesting. When you talk to that guy who's making printers in that way, you think it's an unsustainable way to make printers, but it's working, isn't it? Why is it working? Because that company has a hockey stick graph, a growth graph. And that kind of growth gives that company more power and leverage under our current way of understanding things. And people want to emulate that. And I'm just saying, okay, you can emulate that. But the people who are beh behaving that way and acting that way, they actually do believe they are ending the world and they are now building bunkers, right? So you could say, okay, these guys, they're doing a terrible thing, but their terrible thing isn't really as bad as they themselves believe. I guess that's what you're saying, that they don't really have the ability to do that. And they're building their bunkers, which of course won't work if there were a real disaster, but the real disaster is not going to come. And it, so it's like, what? okay, then, then, you know, and it's true. And girls use Snapchat and TikTok. And I've met the people who design those things and they know, Exactly what the what the impact of these social networks are on the kids who are using it, you know, very bad health effects. They understand that they've tested, but they will keep doing it as long as, you know, as long as they're allowed to. Isn't, isn't that a, a job for legislators to protect kids from things that could potentially harm them? I mean, if, if kids. Well, yeah. All right. Let's just say yeah. let's say it is right. So how would legislators know to do it? Well, people would try to vote for legislators. To do that, how would people know to vote for legislators to do that? They would read a book or an article by someone like me who says, look what's going on, right? So that's, we are in the process of educating people about what does and doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. I, I think we've gotten to sort of this, this, uh, sort, sort of the other, other side of this, my, my question now, which is, um, okay. So tech billionaires think they're ending the world and so they're building bunkers. But why should anybody else care? And I think now we, we have our answer, right? Um, which is that, in so far as the harm that they're creating, it's not up to them. It's up to the government to legislate to to prevent those harms. You know, to prevent tech billionaires from actually being able to end the world. Right. So, if tech billionaires can't actually end the world, then even if they think they're ending the world, and even if they are building their bunkers, then not, none of us should be concerned, right? And so, the the other side to yes, that is that people have to be informed. Yeah, and that's a good and that's a good start. But also, I mean, there's some. And it may not, I don't know, it may not be entertaining to you, and that's okay too. But there's some value in understanding how people think. What are the driving philosophies and mindsets of our time, right? So if you go, okay, what is Bitcoin? What really is it? You know, and you can say, okay, we are all totally free not to use Bitcoin. We are free not to use it. I get it. I have my liberty. I don't have to buy Bitcoin, right? My neighbor can buy it. But what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is the conversion of, of atoms of our world into digital bits, right? It's a way of 
burning the planet as a way of proving that we have faith in a digital symbol system. It's the conversion of matter into digits in a very polluting and toxic and awful way. By whom? For what reason? You know, how does it actually impact the economy? Is it, is it, is it good for the distribution of wealth or bad for it? You know, and, and we've, we've got to, I believe we have to understand some things like this before we run ahead, run and buy, and buy these things. Even, you know, Elon Musk, you could say he's a hero. Maybe you could say he's a villain. Maybe, but here's a guy who's on the good side. He was trying to make, you know, electric cars that use less energy and carbon than, than regular gasoline cars. Then in one day, he buys a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and he undid any energy savings in that one, in that one purchase. He undid all the energy savings that he had done. Now, I'm not talking about coercion or people being locked in prisons and being forced to eat Bitcoin or to drive Teslas. I'm talking about the, the, the irony and silliness of a Silicon Valley mindset that is being emulated by lots of people. And we are living in the devices and using the platforms that are developed with this philosophy in mind. So I would just say, if you know that the tools you're using are, are being created by people who think this way, who do want to dominate women and nature, who really do want to bring on the end of times. They do, like Bannon, they are accelerationists and believe that we should end reality as we know it, wipe the slate clean and control, alt, delete ourselves into a, a reboot of civilization. Then sometimes you can find traces of this mindset in the actual products that they're making. And I think we can then end up choosing what we use and don't use a little more intelligently. Okay. So, I mean, next I wanted to ask about the actual plausibility of this kind of, of doomsday scenario um, and, and how you think it would sort of play out. So if the world is really heading in the direction of some sort of climate-fueled catastrophe, it obviously would, wouldn't happen at the, the flick of a switch. It would take decades of very gradual degradation. And I think that's that, that degradation is already you know in, yes. in progress based on most reports. So the one thing I think people often overlook in this situation is human ingenuity and our remarkable capacity for adaptation. So if sea levels really got to the point where they were genuinely deadly to millions of people, I don't think we would, you know, just stand by idly and let them all die. There would be another uh, innovator or another genius or another Bill Gates, or Elon Musk or someone out there that would figure out how to build seawalls or use geoengineering or how to resettle mass amounts of people over the decades that it would take to become a, a real apocalyptic si situation. Or, you know, that's at least what I would like to think that human innovation and ingenuity wouldn't let everyone succumb to an avoidable yet tragic fate. So would you disagree? Well, well, I don't, uh, it's not that I disagree. It's that right now, as we speak this second, millions of people are near waist high in water in Pakistan. What is it? Two thirds of the country underwater now or just half? Right. So as you say, it has begun and we don't yet know. And hopefully we'll have better immigration policies and let them walk, I guess, to Turkey or <laughs> India or somewhere that's not underwater. But no, that's already begun. And yes, some, if, some of the tech billionaires, the same ones who believe in their, in their apocalypse bunkers or that they're going to get off the planet in Blue Origin or get to Mars or somewhere before the bad thing happens. Um, a lot of them believe that, yes, what we need is a solution as big as Uber or Facebook or Google to solve the problem that everything happens in their world because they're, they're techno capitalists. Everything happens at scale, right? 
So they have things like on the one hand, you have the Great Reset, which is the World Economic Forum's idea of putting everything in the world on a blockchain and, you know, and coming up with ways uh, that way to account for everything and create a new kind of conscious stakeholder capitalism that will take everyone into account. Um, you have the tech bros who think that they will come up with a big giant thing like shoot sulfur into the sky or throw iron filings into the ocean. But I think that these giant scaled one size fits all solutions to climate, the, the X prizes that they're trying to put out to say, here's a hundred, we'll give a hundred million dollars to the best idea are probably uh, more problematic than they are, than they are uh, uh, solutions. I believe that the kinds of solutions that will work are going to be a myriad of smaller solutions. And I do agree that that can happen. But the the myriad of smaller solutions, the kind of more grassroots efforts and um, changes in behavior and um, that, that would lead to uh, uh, some mitigation of the climate crisis, we've got to engender a different kind of culture for that. So again, that's why I'm trying to poke some holes in the one-size-fits-all techno-solutionist bravado of the tech billionaires and and come to a more uh, humble approach to, to I guess, what we, we would call progress, where how can I in my town, what can we do right here, right now, rather than depending on one of the tech billionaires to save us? Because those guys really don't mean to save us. They think it's hopeless. They, they're, they're already on plan B. Okay. And just one other thing I wanted to sort of touch on there before we move on is this, this idea that, you know, tech billionaires are somehow, or, you know, for example, one of the examples that you mentioned, you know, how Elon Musk goes in one day and buys a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and the negative environmental uh, effect that, that that has in terms of energy uses negates, you know, pretty much all of the the benefits from Tesla or, or, you know, some, some sort of similar example. But I think mm -hmm. at the same point, it's, it's important to acknowledge, um, that the tech billionaires didn't just become billionaires, you know, they, they didn't wake up billionaires. The only way someone becomes a billionaire in, in sort of the, the modern economy is by providing tremendous amounts of value, um, to society. So I think Bill Gates has done a, a massive a, amount of, I would challenge of, that. I would let, challenge let me, that. let me, let me, let me, uh, okay. finish and then you can, you yeah. can rebut. Um, so I think, Bill Gates, um, through creating Microsoft, dramatically improved worker productivity. And in every corner of the globe now, the, the, the you know, workers can be more productive. They can feed their families. Um, you know, so, so many technologies, um, every, every major company out there, um, has that, that has produced a tech billionaire at the same time, you know, Apple, for example, with extending the smartphone. Now, um, people in, in Africa or India, you know, even the poorest people in Africa and India now carry around a phone with millions of times more processing power than the Apollo 11 computers. They have access to all of humanity's knowledge at the press of a button. Um, so all, all of these advancements, all the millions of people that they employ, all of the, the, you know, the, if, if we compare our standard of living 50 years ago, the, the stuff that people had access to and the stuff that we have access to now, it's dramatic. It's a dramatic improvement in our standard of living, right? The, the average person today, I mean, you, you wouldn't want to be the richest person in the world a hundred years ago. You'd rather be an average person today. Um, that's how much standard of living ha has improved, you know, modern medicine, so many things. Um, so basically what I'm, I'm trying to get at here is that all of those billionaires that, that these companies have produced, they didn't just become billionaires. They became billionaires through providing goods and services to society that filled a demand that people want, bought, use their money to go out and willingly purchase. And that made them billionaires, right? So they are in, in essence, billionaires because of the value that they contributed and the betterment that they provided to society. 
great. We're having a great kind of, it's fine, a great college freshman conversation about Ayn Rand and basic libertarian uh, uh, philosophy. It's true. They've done great, great, great things. They've done great things. And I've met them, and they believe that we're all losers, and they believe the world is ending, and they believe that they are responsible for it, and they mean to get off. That's all. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I think we've sort of sort of gotten to, to a point where we're maybe on, on slightly different pages here um, in terms of what we're talking about. So um, well, with you're, that you're, I mean, it's fine. You, you're trying to defend kind of free market capitalism from what you think is a critique. You know, and and I mean, we can have that discussion. You know, we can we can talk, go back to to how markets were created. You know, it's really my problem. If we really want to go to it, is less human greed, but the biases of central currency. So, interest bearing central currency requires growth in order for the system to stay stable, and it was not invented in order to help promote economic activity, it was actually invented in the 12th century by monarchs who were looking to slow the rise of the middle class. So the purpose of central currency was so that people who already had money could stay wealthy by having exclusive province over the lending of money to other people. And what that's done is created an economy that must grow. The balance sheet must grow in order for the banks to stay solvent. So we have a philosophy now that GDP needs to grow. And what that's done, the problem it's made for all of the great, great people who are trying to develop technologies is when their company reaches its genuine carrying capacity, it's not allowed to stay there. So Twitter, my friends started Twitter. It was making $2 billion a year. But because of their debt structure, the way that they took money, $2 billion a year was not going to pay back all the people who invested money in Twitter. So Twitter has to try to grow by some other means. Same thing with Facebook. Same thing with Tesla. Same thing with Google. You know, Google wasn't taking people's data. Google was making billions of dollars a year. And Sequoia Capital, who owned Google, said, is that all you got? We're only making billions of dollars. How do we get to hundreds of billions? How do we keep it accelerating? How do we maintain exponential growth? Said, oh, we could take all this data that people are leaving behind and sort of use that against them. Oh, okay. So Google turned from this great service company into something very different. So I think you're right that these technologies are developed and do wonderful things. But when that rather than thinking about how are we serving our market, we think now about how do we take all the chips off the table, they end up destroying their markets rather than sustaining their markets. And that's why these companies fail. It's okay for them to fail because the people who start them have exit strategies and they leave. Now, when you go meta on the whole thing and you realize we're in a world of multi-billion dollar companies where the, the founders all have exit strategies. Even Jack Welch had an exit strategy from GE, which he destroyed using financialization. When you're living in a world of all exit strategies, you end up with a billionaire class that's actually thinking about the ultimate exit strategy. They're thinking, oh my gosh, we really, we're leaving devastation in our wake. We're destroying all the markets. We're destroying the, the, we're destroying, even actively destroying America. You know, they're trying to turn America against each other. You make more money. Media certainly makes more money doing that. And you end up in a, in a, in a difficult, uh, in a difficult situation. And I would argue that, the, the billionaires that I've met and the tech bros that I've spoke to are very cynical about what it is that they're doing. They no longer believe that they are um, helping people with their products. They think that they are um, getting what last bits of money they can from the system. 
um, to go build their plan B. And that's where I think your book sort of has has this value, right? Because ultimately, it's it's not up to the, the billionaires to protect the environment. It's up to the legislators. It's up to the laws. It's up to the, the people to ensure that we don't let any one person, um, you know, um, you know, regardless of their resources, um, to, to um, put society in a position where they're actively destroying it. And so that's, right. that's sort of where I think your your book has has this tremendous value in in um, getting this message out to people and saying, hey, you know what? Um, maybe there is something else um, behind the motivations or behind the, the philosophies of these um, people that have made all this money through tech um, that is very pervasive that maybe we're not seeing. And so by getting that message out there, um, we as, as a constituency, we as voters then have the ability to create a, a framework or to elect um, legislative representatives that can then, you know, create the sort of necessary regulatory framework. And this is how we've always reined in right. powerful people, right? We don't let sure. anyone run amok. Well, we try not to, but I will tell you this, the, the tech billionaires and the lobbies and their, their, their billions of dollars are not being spent on the kinds of legislators that um, you or I might hope um, would come into power and rein in um, some of the bad practices of these companies. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's sort of the job, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's it's the job of of you know regulators or, or government to make sure that you know I can't go and kill my neighbor and take his money and that the downside of doing that is large enough to stop me from doing it because at the end of the day I mean humans are humans we're going to pursue our own self interest and it's it's in the interest of of society to to create a regulatory framework that doesn't allow them to to be destructive in, in order to do that right but they believe that the destruction is necessary I mean that's what they call it creative destruction I call it destructive destruction they believe that government is the obstacle to their wealth, to their company's functioning. They, they, the one guy who actually was interesting was Mark Zuckerberg. You know, when he was in front of Congress, I mean, he didn't want them to uh, do anything bad to him, but he was basically begging to be regulated. He was begging for it because he can't do it himself. He can't. He's got shareholders. He's got to answer to them. He's got to maximize growth. The only way he could possibly be reined in is if government reigns in all the companies like his so that they're, they're all on, on uh, uh, level ground. But um, they don't even understand it well enough to do it just just yet. Yeah, and and that whole cronyism problem is a, is a topic for another day. I mean, we could have a whole different podcast episode on yeah. that. Um, but anyway to to finish off i i wanted to ask about your approach your best approach moving forward so um you know if you woke up tomorrow you were president you were omnipotent you were the king of the world um what what changes would you recommend or implement both at, at a societal and a legislative level that we should all be collectively aiming towards to create the best possible future well first i would certainly wouldn't do it through a king of the world you know magic wand thing right if i had a, a, a genie, I would, you know, my wish should be for no genies, you know. Um, but, um, I, there are things I would, I would do and hopefully others would model these behaviors. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with just doing less, you know, being more local, being more social. You know, we, we are not as individuals obligated to keep the market growing, you know, and, and, uh, I think we need to change some of our understanding of what winning is. And, and I get it. You know, my, my dad was raised in a really bad neighborhood. You know, they were immigrants. They lived in a tenement, you know, a zillion of them, you know, going in the same bucket as their, as their bathtub or whatever. And 
he always used to tell me, you know, he worked hard, he went to school, he earned money so that he could get out of that place and raise me somewhere better. But what happens when your whole world is turning into that bad neighborhood? I, I, what I want to help people do is rather than think they have to get up and leave where they are to get somewhere else to kind of turn around and make where they are a better place, you know, that really ad adopt the mindset that we are all in this together, that winning is not what these tech bros think. Winning is not escaping from everybody else and, and jumping into virtual reality or onto your island or into your, uh, 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 you know, Hamptons retreat or your, your castle on the hilltop. That winning is really uh, reconnecting with other people in a real way in a real neighborhood. And uh, there's there's a, a level of wealth that once you get there, and you're right, you know, the level of wealth of a well, if there was such a thing now, a kind of a, a stable middle class level of wealth is beyond what a monarch had, you know, 500 years ago. And I remember growing up in a middle class neighborhood in Queens, New York, with one barbecue pit at the end of the block, and everyone was there together. It was this communal activity. It was fun. We got wealthier and moved to the wealthier suburbs and everyone had their own barbecue in their own backyard. And all of a sudden, the fun of the barbecue was gone. So I just think we have to look at wealth, look at isolation, look at what COVID did and all of the wonderful temptations that we succumb to. You know, in America with COVID, it's like, okay, I'm getting an Amazon Prime account and an Amazon doorbell and, and DoorDash delivery and fresh direct. I mean, everyone had everyone bringing stuff to their little little sealed houses. And we were all living like little billionaires in our in our secret little bunkers, but it really wasn't fun. And that's where their mindset is driving us. That's where their their products are biased toward creating this very individualistic, isolated um, style of living. And I think that's precisely the style of living that we have to uh, 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 abort, really, if we want to, uh, uh, to save ourselves from uh, any one of these coming disasters. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Rushkov. Thank you. And you take care. And, and, and really it's, it's, uh, the market won't solve all these problems. We really don't have as much free will in a market. We, we pick from what's, what's available to us. Uh, and if what's available to us is limited, sometimes we pick things that are really kind of awful. So, you know, I, I would just, I would, I would challenge the assumption that we all have the ability to buy the best organic foods and get the best education that, you know, that, that consumers don't really have as much choice as, as we're led to believe. Okay. I think there is, there's a lot more, uh, here to be said, a, a lot, a lot deeper. We can get into the economics of it, but, um, for now we're, we're out of time. So thank you everyone for all listening right. to the economics review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.